This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. Justin, back from world travels. It is good to hear your voice. And I mean, you're on to other travels, which we'll get to in a second here. But first of all, tell us about your trip through Europe. How was it? It was great family trip, family vacation, a little over 12,000 miles in three weeks. <laughs> wow. And uh, went from Seattle to Iceland to Reykjavik, went to the Blue Lagoon, hung out there for a while, went to Zurich, Switzerland. Oh, yeah. In the middle of the one of the worst heat waves oh, no. Europe has had in decades. Went to Innsbruck, Austria. Even they were complaining about how hot it was. It's 20 degrees normal, above normal for them. Wow. Uh, that heat wave. And then we went to uh, Northern Italy, went to Southern Italy, went to uh, the Tuscany region, had a house my wife found there with the swimming pool. And then we went to Norway and visited family in Norway. So we were gone for about three weeks, but our kids ages 15, 13, and 10 did Mm -hmm. a fantastic job, even with all that travel. And Got to see some pretty amazing sights. Uh, got to uh, have some great food, some great wine. Um, it was appropriate. We were in Norway last week. That's the home of Akavit. And uh, happened to be the same weekend when we were launching our new Akavit product at the Perfect. Ballard Distillery and Tasting mm-hmm. Room for Ballard Seafood Fest. So it was just a great time all around. But I, we are very happy to be back in our regular size beds and uh, <laughs> some American food and just, you know, cooler weather. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that we sometimes get a little bummed about the rain or the clouds, but there are a lot of people suffering through some some immense heat waves right now. What was one of the best things you mentioned, great things to drink that you can share just real quick, like best one of the best drinking experiences you had? Well, I think being in Tuscany and having uh, Chianti, uh, true classical Chianti red wine from the vineyard that we were staying on, and uh, the house that Jennifer found was built in the 1300s. Wow! Uh, out of stone, oh, and uh, we rented that. And again, I had a, a pool and everything in the in the middle of the vineyard, overlooking the valley. So even though it was 105 degrees and the house had no air conditioning, mm-hmm. we were able to go jump in the pool and enjoy some red wine and just relax uh, as a family. And you know. I'll watch the kids hanging out without all the distraction or everything that the kids in the U.S. are used to these days. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, shout out to you because you're a rock star for planning that whole thing. <laughs> and yes. she brought in a chef one night to do a uh, pasta making lesson with the kids. Oh, they, made she did. they made fresh I mean, pasta. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In the meantime, what is going on in the headlines? On the headlines, well, uh, really interesting, you know, this whole movement towards uh, reducing waste, eliminating plastic and all that. The Grupo Modelo is testing a stackable beer can for Corona beer uh, by the can. Instead of using six-pack rings, the cans are fitted at the top and bottom with threads, just like uh, a bolt and a nut. So you can take one can, put it on top of the other can, give it a half twist, and literally screw the cans together to secure them, which means you could then stack 
10 cans together, 5 cans, 12 cans, whatever, carry one stack around and have no external plastic to uh, or cardboard to connect uh, or try to keep that packaging together. So and what's really interesting about this is that they are going to make this what they call the fit pack design open source. So it's available for all can wow. industry members to use, not just try and keep it proprietary to their own products. So this is really going to be uh, fascinating to watch it evolve across the country. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you hear about that when it comes to online and co- a lot of coding things out there, open source, but not a lot of times in the for-profit beer, wine, spirits industry. So that's cool. We'll keep an eye on that. Yeah, very cool. Next up uh, from the drinksbusiness.com, Ed Sheeran, who's a singer uh, of great fame. In fact, he was in Seattle this last summer and played Love to a sold out house at <laughs> CenturyLink uh, Field. He has won a battle to keep a huge pub sign at his home in Suffolk, England, up and running. It was a 16 foot pub sign dedicated to his wife that he hung up at his one and a half million pound uh, country estate in Suffolk. According to the Daily Mail, he was ordered to take it down because he put it up without planning commission permission. Having it turned, he had a, a property with a barn there into a secret uh, drinking den that he converted in 2017. Uh, but however, the council planning heads uh, changed their mind this week and they announced that he's going to be allowed to keep that pub sign. But just imagine if you had a 16-foot sign, LED or neon lit and hanging up outside your home or your apartment. Yeah, wow. And I will say, Ed Sheeran is one of the people I have met in my past working in radio, and he was one of the nicest, kindest, most humble people I had ever come into contact with. And so it doesn't surprise me that people would change their mind probably just after having interaction with him (laughs) and talking with him and understanding his intentions because, I mean, yeah, we got to find pictures of this because it sounds like a pretty darn cool uh, pub experience that he has built with underground passageways to his house. That sounds so awesome. Yeah. (laughs) How much does he love his wife? 16 feet tall. Yes, I love it. That's sweet. Which is about four times as tall as he is, by the way. (laughs) uh, That's okay. And lastly in the news from the spirits business, canned water brand enhances the flavor of whiskey. Uh, This is a new naturally sourced canned water from the Isle of Lewis in Scotland in their outer Hebrides region. Uh, It claims to be the only known canned water brand specifically for mixing with whiskey. It's said to provide an alternative to the chlorine-heavy tap water and bottled water that is used largely throughout Europe. The inventors or the the packagers of this say that uh, it blends better with the whiskey, provides a better flavor profile, and allows the natural uh, richness of the whiskey to come through without any of the artificial chemical taste that comes from uh, otherwise domestic tap drinking water. It seems so specific, but I guess this article from the Spirits Business News kind of makes it make sense when they say that if you're paying up to, they have it in euros, but 20 euros for a nice glass of scotch and they put tap water in it that's kind of chlorine heavy or, you know, not the best water, you're kind of ruining it. That's true. And I can tell you one thing, uh, going through Europe for three weeks, uh, when we asked for water, never did it come out of a tap. They always brought you either still water or sparkling water out of a bottle. Um, so I'm not sure how often, uh, maybe, maybe in Scotland it is the practice to use tap water otherwise, but, uh, they claim that two Swedish scientists who worked on them with this project, that they concluded this, the whiskey tastes better after being, uh, mixed with this water than regular tap water. 
Coming up on Cast Club Radio, well, unfortunately, we have talked about this topic several times over the course of this podcast. It is the warehouse, rickhouse fires that happen, the disasters and the impact that they make in the beer, wine and spirits industry. There was just a huge one before the 4th of July, Jim Bean facing millions of dollars in the loss from their warehouse fire. But we'll discuss this topic in larger detail. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Club Radio. Unfortunately, every once in a while, we got to talk about bad news on this show. And sometimes that is in the form of a warehouse fire, a rickhouse fire. Uh, We've talked about it several times. It seems to happen a lot in this industry. And right before the 4th of July, there was a huge one. Jim Beam may face $45 million in loss from their most recent warehouse fire. Justin, what happened with this one? Well, uh, speculation continues to be that a lightning storm hit the Rick House. Now, this is not going to be too detrimental to Jim Beam because, according to news reports, they have over 120 other Rick Houses, all full of tens of thousands of barrels. So, this is just kind of one minor dent in the in, in their overall inventory. But uh, yeah, this Rick House had 45,000 barrels caught on fire. Uh, when that happens, the support structure inside the bear, the warehouse, which is made of wood, begins to collapse. And uh, what we saw in the aftermath is uh, a lot of this river of whiskey ran literally into the river next to the property and started killing a lot of fish because you got 120 proof whiskey dumping into the river and mm. no oxygen, and the fish pull their oxygen out of the water through their gills. Uh, this article from Forbes.com. Talking about this, um, they're saying $45 million in losses, but that's just the cost of the product. So 45,000 barrels burning up at a cost of maybe $1,000 per barrel that they have into it, that's not the lost profit. You know, They're going to sell those 45,000 barrels would generate almost 12 million bottles once it finally wow. went into blending and production. And if they're wholesaling that for $15 a bottle, you're talking about $170 million in lost revenue there. So big, big impact. Not the only uh, accident or, or disaster we've had this year. Just a few months ago, we talked about a collapse of the Oz Tyler, one of their rickhouses in Kentucky, where they lost about uh, 9,000 barrels. This falls on last year's uh, collapse of the Bardstown uh, rickhouse. They lost about 18,000 barrels. A lot of this infrastructure in Kentucky and Tennessee, but in these cases, Kentucky, are old, old buildings. Uh, They don't have uh, the new fire code. They don't have the new building codes, so they're not as stable. No sprinkler systems to uh, put out the fires. And so that's one of the topics I read about uh, on my trip was, um, you know, these fire marshals in these states trying to figure out, can they create the authority to go in and make these companies with these huge inventories go in and start putting sprinklers in their in their rickhouses. So this will only uh, liven that debate even further. Have you heard of any steps being taken to try to somehow protect from fires at all? Well, again, when you talk to the fire marshals, they'll tell you the, the first thing is sprinkler systems. The fire code specifically exempts spirits stored in whiskey barrels from a lot of the fire code requirements that otherwise would, would be in effect. But 
even our own discussions at Heritage Distilling with, as we expand and open up new locations, the rules are becoming more and more stringent about what you've got to do, and, and we are being forced to upgrade or spend more money or put more life safety measures in place, which we're happy to do, uh, as long as it's supported by science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going and telling, you know, your local fire marshal in a, in a county somewhere in Kentucky, try going and telling Jim Beam, which, oh, by the way, is owned by Centauri now at uh, Japan, that they got to go spend tens of millions of dollars to upgrade the sprinkler systems in their warehouses when this is really one of only a couple major incidents that have happened in 100 years. You know, they start to do a cost-benefit analysis, and, and uh, they push back pretty hard on it. Yeah, that's interesting to me because my, my next question was, I could understand for a small operation or one of the craft distilleries as we were talking about, but it seems like, yes, a big company to me uh, wouldn't have such a big problem with it. But as you mentioned, it's just a cost-benefit ratio like anything else. And um, they've they've weighed it, obviously done the numbers. And so uh, this wasn't on their on their list of to-dos. Well, everything's a risk, and you always have to analyze risk, and it comes down to statistics and numbers. And minimizing so, risk. <laughs> minimizing risk. And then sometimes the risk is we could overbuild, we could overprepare, and we could spend all this money and never have an issue that would require the use of that technology to be put in place, and that money we could use in other ways. So, you know, the risk assessment managers right now at that company apparently feel comfortable with what the uh, current setup is. But a lot of this will come down to insurance now. Will the insurance cover mm-hmm. this, the loss of the $45 million that went into filling those barrels and the $170 million in anticipatory sales revenue? And if if they are going to cover it, is the insurance company going to go back to Jim Beam and say, hey, we're going to cover it this time, but now you've got to spend the money to upgrade your fire safety stuff in the other locations because we're not going to, we don't want another payout like this. Well, I'm looking at other stories from this article, and there really are a, a lot of other incidents listed. Um, you know, it's uh, got in 2018, around 4th of July, Barton in Kentucky had a huge collapse. Yep. You've got a Heaven Hill in 1996 with uh, 90,000 barrels of whiskey catching fire. Does it seem like most of these uh, bigger name companies have been able to survive these, even though they seem like huge losses? Yeah, but they're huge companies. So Heaven Hill is a huge company, uh, massive company. So 90,000 barrels of whiskey. Yeah, that's that's a big deal. But again, if they were insured properly, then they were able to get the cost of their uh, raw goods covered and maybe the cost of the sales value of the goods. So 90,000 barrels, um, that could be $300 million in revenue. Wow. And uh, that's a function of, uh, you know, how good is their insurance? And the other thing may be, maybe they have the life safety stuff there. Maybe they had all the sprinkler systems and containment and everything, and yet uh, it either didn't work as designed or uh, it still wasn't enough to you know, overcome that particular fire. This article also talks a little bit about uh, some of the companies embracing disasters. <laughs> what have you seen from that? Well, yeah, so sometimes they will try to gather as much as possible of the product. If it's just the Rickhouse collapsing, like the Oz Tyler collapse or the Barton collapse last year, and the barrels weren't destroyed and there was no leakage and no fires, you can then maybe create a cool story around that and and have that be kind of uh, a very limited run of that. It could be that you have a little bit left over and you're able to make some interesting blends and some interesting flavor profiles. It could be that the fire or the, the leakage 
got rid of so much of a particular year's production that whatever's left over now is very rare, and they can then begin to figure out how to use that and use that rarity and scarcity to drive up the cost in a very limited Hmm. uh, run of bottling or labeling. In some cases, a brand has built their whole image around it. That would be the case with Jameson, right, who is sort of – uh, have that motto without fear and sort of packaged itself uh, on that being part of their history. Oh, in fact, TV ads they ran a couple years ago talked about, you know, barrels falling overboard and uh, <laughs> having to jump overboard and go get them and fight off fight off the octopus that was trying to grab the whiskey and so <laughs> mm-hmm. on. So, yeah, they create a little bit of legend and lore around that. But uh, the, the question really becomes, do they have any product left to sell? Yeah, that's still important. Is there <laughs> yeah. any instance, maybe not to this degree, but just of the happy accidents where you guys have experienced that on some scale, where you've turned something that might have been a mistake or a disaster into something positive? Well, sometimes it's um, uh, for us, uh, I've talked about this many times, the BSB 103 was really yeah. uh, something that came to us out of one of our cast club members who liked the BSB, but they wanted it in their uh, cast club barrel and they wanted to age it for a certain amount of time. And when it came out, it came out at a higher proof uh, than we intended, and it was uh, fantastic. And, and uh, it happened to be 103 proof, and it rhymed with BSB, so we came out with BSB 103, and the results have been very good. So the, those are more deliberative accidents because – in the cast club, we know specifically that each batch will be a little unique. And if we can find those one or two gems that we can turn into a broader-based product to sell on a bigger scale, then part of the genius of the cast club and the experimental aspect of it plays out, and uh, we can be very happy with those results. Yeah, that's a great story. And uh, as always, you can try BSB 103 and get out to one of your tasting rooms, one of your many tasting rooms, which we always recommend. And up next on Cast Club Radio, we have Stephen Severin, owner of Numos and the new bar in Capitol Hill, Life on Mars. He was actually one of our very first guests when Life on Mars was still an idea. He couldn't even really fully talk to us about it because it was in the works. It's all set to go now. and We want to hear all about it next on Cast Club Radio. Club Radio. I'm Maura Dooley, and I am joined now by a very special guest, Stephen Severin. He was actually, you were a guest on our second episode of Cast Club Radio, and we're at almost 100 episodes now. That seems so long ago. How I know. Long, how long has that been now? Let's see. I think, I believe we started in October of 2017, September or October. <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. 100, 100 episodes. That's awesome. Thank you. And I should mention, Stephen is owner of Numos and now the new bar, Life on Mars. So the last time you were on with us, you told us you had a, a little something in the works, a new bar that you were excited about working on, but couldn't really tell us much because it was it was still just kind of an idea at that point. But now Life on Mars yeah. is open in Capitol Hill. How does it feel to have that done? It feels so good. This is... This is the bar that I've always wanted to create. And I mean, I've, I've opened and operated a handful of bars and clubs now, but you have partners and not, not always does everybody agree on what the, the vibe and the idea yeah, of course. and the look should be. You know, we all have our opinions 
And this was the first time that the idea was shared with our partners. Um, so it worked and clicked very, very well. That's awesome. And I know you documented your love for music the last time we talked to you, especially Pink Floyd, I remember. So that is kind of the passion, the driving passion and idea behind Life on Mars. Tell us a little more about what people can experience music-wise there. So the the music was such a huge part of what we were doing. We I know when people open bars and stuff, after they're done with everything, they come to me and they're like, hey, what can we do to make the music cool? And it's like, you're already done. Your doors are open. Yeah. Your chance to have made this really work, that's past. It's always a, the, the last thought. It's not even the second, third, or fourth thought. It's the last. And this was really one of our very first thoughts when we put this together was we wanted a space that people could come and hear really, really good music and be able to hear it, but not so loud that they couldn't carry a conversation with the person next to them. And so we spent a lot of time making sure that we did that. We spent a huge amount of money on sound mitigation uh, panels in the ceiling so that as people are talking, those sounds go up and they get sucked up into these panels, yet the music still comes out and so it doesn't sound like you're in some type of an echo chamber. Oh, wow. We also have 16 speakers from Sonos, who Sonos, being the amazing people they are, donated them, them all to us so that we could have speakers everywhere. So we don't have to turn up anything very loud. And it gets this really full sound, uh, which was super important to us. Like, I have a club. I didn't want to create another club, but I wanted to create an atmosphere, or I should say we wanted to create an atmosphere where music was a main focus instead of just being, uh, you know, in the background or the, the last thought. And you've made this and really I, cool, a cool way for your guests to participate where they can actually pick out vinyl to be played at the restaurant, right? Or at the bar. Yes. So... The very beginning, we decided we were going to create this really cool jukebox that was going to be all of the cuts and the songs that uh, John Richards and myself were going to handpick. And we worked on it uh, along with my wife, Lee Sims, who did so much research for probably almost a year wow. and then came to the realization that the software doesn't exist. We talked with people at MIT, and we talked to people <laughs> everywhere, all across the country, and we couldn't make what we wanted. And so we were like, okay, we have all of these records. Let's, let's have people play, play the records more. Like, let's make that be the thing instead of the jukebox. So the way it works now is you come on in, you walk over to the wall of 6,000 pieces of vinyl, grab one record, come and put it in the, in the, um, the queue, in the cupboard, the, the file, whatever that thing is called. I can't even think of the name of it. But you put the records in order, and then our bartenders play them as they're put in. And we do that until at least 7 o'clock, seven days a week, and then all day on Sunday. But a lot of times it goes later than that. It's all 
dependent on how busy we are and how much our bartenders can get away from making a drink or bringing you food versus flipping that record. Makes sense. I love that, though. That's such a cool idea. And then the vinyl is for purchase as well, right? Yes. There, we have 14 records that we've curated that are for sale at all times. Nice. So, and we have a, it's on the menu, which is cool. So as you're looking to see what drinks and, and uh, food you might want, you get to go and, and look at the vinyl menu as well. And you'll see the Nationals on there and Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, and Brandy Carl, Carlisle, Tribe Called Quest. And so favorites. it's been really fun to not only watch the records that people pick, because one of the great things is people go pick a record and it's this sort of almost a proud moment of like, look what I'm going to put on. <laughs> they're happy that they're going to get to hear the Avett Brothers, but they're also showing to other people, hey, I'm going to play the Avett Brothers and people give them the thumbs up and it's it's been pretty it's been pretty fun to watch the crowd and how they've interacted and, and learned to work uh, with the system. And then when that's not going, John Richards and I have created a playlist of our favorite songs in the world that's over 2,000 songs, and you won't hear the same song for two weeks easily. And it plays it all day long. It's always playing. Wow. It's a company called Playlist Generation, and it's awesome. And we haven't even, we barely started. Like the 2,000 songs was to get us off the ground. We'll like just we keep have adding. so many more. Yeah. Well, it sounds like heaven for music lovers. I know that obviously the music was one of the, like you said, the first components you wanted to think about when creating Life on Mars. How did you go about putting the cocktail menu together? The cocktail menu ended up being a happy accident. I'm in the, with Numos and Barboza and the Runaway, it's very much a, how do I put it? it it's very much a matter of speed. People are mm-hmm. coming, they're wanting drinks, they want to get them quickly and get back to the band. So it's a lot, there's not many ingredients that go to most drinks at, at Numos. Mm-hmm. People aren't ordering you know, a drink that has... They don't go there for a craft cocktail. Right, exactly. They don't want five ingredients in their drink. And we hadn't really thought it, but when we hired our our GMs and our our assistants and bar managers, they all came from the craft cocktail world. Mm -hmm. That's very much their entire world. And so they were like, yeah, we want to do simple drinks, but we can make them... We can make part of them ahead of time so you're not mixing up the batches and having to put all seven ingredients at once. Yeah. We can put part of this together. So it's called pre batching. Mm-hmm. And then we can just add two ingredients and it's really fast, like it would be at a show hall. And it was a huge, huge surprise for us. I mean, in the, uh, um, the cocktails are ridiculous. It's, it is, hands down what people love and say about us the most. Yeah, I was looking at the menu and it, it looks amazing. I love that there's quite a bit of rum on it. I feel like that doesn't always get top billing, but some of these look delicious yeah. and also seasonal. I'm seeing some stuff with rum and coconut and pineapple. Uh, it sounds yep. awesome. And then I know you have um, yep. for food an all plant-based menu. Yes. 
Yeah, it's all, all the food and drinks, everything is all plant based. That's awesome. So, and that came mostly as a thing that John and Amy are both vegan and have been for a lot of years. And when we were putting together the idea of doing food, which originally I didn't want to do because the number one thing that kills restaurant is food and why so many businesses or small businesses don't last longer than nine months is it's hard to run a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, But with this, it makes it a lot easier because you don't have the, like the meat or the fish to spoil. Like when I ran Pike street fish fry, we had to sell the fish within a day Mm -hmm. or you can't serve it because it's fish. This is potatoes and impossible burgers. And, you know, the house macaroni and cheese or the charred broccoli, that's all stuff that can last a few days. And so you don't, nothing gets thrown out. There are only five all plant-based restaurants in Seattle. That's shocking because I that, know there. I know from again being a server that there's a market for it. Yeah, I got constant a huge questions. Market for it. Yeah. Yes, it, like you go to Portland and there's hundreds, and here there's five. I think there's seven now. Wow. I, I think there's a new place in uh, Fremont that opened up, but it was just like, okay, let's let's give people what they want. Mm-hmm. If they want plant-based food. Let's give it to them, and it's it's great because. The food is really good, and I'm not vegan. And yeah, I eat. You know, I eat it, and I'm like, wow, that's really good. So and that's the best. Everybody can eat. Well, I think you've put together many things that everyone would like to go check out at Life on Mars. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we're we're about out of time here. Can you tell everyone where they can find out more information? Yes, we are at lifeonmarsseattle.com. And from there, you can go to our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter. As of right now, the social media is run by John Richards and myself. So it's, it's pretty fun. Try to keep it loose and not too serious and not always on topic. Just uh, keep, it, keep it entertaining and give you a reason to come other yeah. than for me to tell you that we'll have the dance hall burger on special today. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. We appreciate you uh, joining us again after being one of our first guests. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Coming up next on Cast Club Radio, we're going to take a look at an interesting study that surveyed where the most non-drinkers throughout the country live. And then for those of you that are drinkers, of course, we have a cocktail recipe. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. We talk a lot about what we like to drink here locally, but sometimes it's fun to take a look at the national picture um, because we do have many great listeners from everywhere. And looking at the U.S. in particular, Forbes put out a recent article pinpointing cities where non-drinkers live. And I thought this was pretty darn interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, And the thing most interesting about it is the proximity to the coastline of all of these cities from the map. 
So according to uh, this Forbes.com article, the uh, nine of the top ten non-drinking cities are located in either Hawaii or in states along the coast. And half of them are in California. Wow. Um, and the majority of them are situated near a large body of water or the beach. Uh, California, 12 of their cities are in the top 50 that uh, with the lowest alcohol consumption or the highest percentage of non-drinkers. Uh, part of the speculation is that the folks who live along the coastlines and the beaches, they may tend to uh, be more health conscious, being, getting out on a regular basis. And so they count their calories to maintain their beach bodies and their diet. Mm -hmm. uh, they pursue activities in the ocean and swimming, maybe. And so the speculation from the article is uh, that they are maybe the most likely to uh, not drink alcohol. Other interesting things to note is the absence of in the Midwest of any states being represented. So yeah. um, that means in the Midwest, they've got a fairly high propensity for alcohol consumption. Interestingly, 30% of Americans 18 and older report that they don't drink alcohol at all in the U.S., 30%, so less than a third, but still a large percentage of the population that doesn't drink uh, alcohol. It's interesting that they note 18 and higher, even though the legal drinking age in all 50 states is 21. <laughs> that is yeah. interesting. Yeah. You wonder if everyone's being honest when they answer, at the, especially if you're asking yeah. people that are under 21. But yeah. um, I did also think it was interesting. I went to the full survey and the, the lowest percentage of non-drinkers, there's four cities from Arizona in there, three from Texas, and then our neighbors in Boise, Idaho are on that list. That's the lowest percentage of non-drinkers, or another way to say yes. it is it's the highest percent of drinking age population, so the most of the population that drinks. Uh, Boise, um, over 90% of the people there consume alcohol in, in these cities in Arizona and uh, Texas. Again, well over 90% of the folks uh, consume alcohol. Contrast that to Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, which is the lowest propensity for consumption. Uh, it's less than 80% of the people uh, consume alcohol. So right around that, uh, getting close to that national average. Um, I did also think, yeah, it was interesting how many warm weather cities where you have low percentage of drinkers. And I, I don't know if there's any correlation or if that's just me making, you know, noticing that. But um, we talked about the coastal cities, but a lot of them also sort of warm weather, warm weather places yeah. where people uh, have a low percentage of consuming, or at least uh, non-drinkers. Sorry. Yeah, it is High interesting. Um, cities like New Jersey, uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, pretty low uh, percentage of alcohol consumption. Detroit, Michigan, pretty low percentage of alcohol consumption. Uh, same thing in Philadelphia. It is interesting. But again, what strikes me is looking at this map, which we can post at Castler Radio, what strikes me at this map is everything is built around the coastlines. Mm -hmm. And there's literally nothing in the middle running from... Um, Utah and uh, east of Boise, all the way through Colorado, through Kansas, through Missouri, uh, you don't begin to see a non a low propensity drinking state until you hit uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, and uh, if, and if you Michigan. really if you take uh, Texas out of the mix here too, and minus one city in Florida, you're really looking at all of the South as well. So that's right. Yeah, nowhere in the South. It's yeah. uh, it it is fascinating, and we should post this so you can get a visual. Because probably we're not, you know, just doing the full thing justice. Yeah, and it's kind of a different well, way to ask people to just say it's it's 
noting people that don't drink at all. So it's mm-hmm. it doesn't tell us a lot about the amount of consumption in those states or anything like that by the people that do. That's right. And uh, I can tell you from being in the industry and doing sales calls and trying to do planning and, and product um, launches and sales, Alabama, Missouri, South Carolina, North Carolina, those are all kind of very deep parts of the Bible Belt. And uh, to not have any of their cities listed on here is really shocking uh, because mm-hmm. I would have assumed that the population in some of those cities of people who are not alcohol uh, consumers at all would have been much, much higher, at least registered in the top 50. Yeah. At least even based on having lived in, I lived in the Midwest for just a short time, but you know, even the rules about when you can have alcohol, when it's served, uh, days that you might not be able to purchase it or hours, even just the difficulty of being able to consume it in some of those places, you would think maybe that would lend it to be lower. But you notice Washington didn't find its way onto this map. That's okay. (laughs) We've got a great new cocktail for you to try at home. That's right. Our cocktail of the week is the Sparkling Blood Orange. It requires our Heritage Distilling Blood Orange Vodka, which is a fantastic product. And uh, having just come back from Italy, which is home to really the best blood oranges in the world, mm-hmm. I can tell you that the Blood Orange Vodka is fantastic. It also requires some of the Cran Raspberry LaCroix sparkling water, uh, some orange bitters, and a fresh lime. And uh, pretty easy to make this cocktail. Pour the ingredients over ice. Give it a quick little stir with a spoon and put the lime garnish in. And all you need is two ounces of the blood orange vodka, five ounces of the Cran Raspberry LaCroix, two dashes of orange bitters, squeeze that lime, and then put it on the garnish, and you're good to go. Ooh, I love a good citrus cocktail this time of year, too, and uh, taking advantage of all those good flavors together. It sounds pretty awesome. It's like a jazzed-up yeah. vodka soda. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this will be available online at heritagedistilling.com. Don't worry. You don't have to remember that from memory. We provide the recipe there for you. You can also download episodes of the podcast, this one, and past ones if you need to catch up. That's right. And uh, when it comes to recipes, I encourage you to go to the webpage heritagedistilling.com slash recipes. We have this recipe builder and matrix, and you can enter your product that you have, and it will shuffle and it will give you a full list of all the different cocktails you can make and some beautiful photographs for each one. And so if you're ever stuck and you don't know what to make with a particular product, just go to heritagedistilling.com slash recipes, and you will have tons of options to play with. That's great. Yeah. I mean, also, if you're just looking to get out of your typical, usual cocktail, because mm-hmm. I get in a I get in a routine and I know what I like and I like what I know. But sometimes, you know, it's fun to get out of the box and experiment a little. This will help you out. That's right. And uh, in terms of Cast Club Radio, you can find us at Cast Club Radio on Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, again, also, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. As always, we will see you back here next week. Thanks for hanging out this week. Till next time, thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling.